Now, can you keep a promise? Can you keep a promise? Uh, it's not a question you want to ask a politician at the moment, was it? In a poll a couple of years ago, the independent newspaper found that only 23% of people trusted government ministers. I'm, I'm not sure that that figure would be quite as high now. They didn't trust them to tell them the truth. Now, that made them uh, slightly less honest, apparently, than estate agents. 24% trusted estate agents. The only people the public trusted less were tabloid journalists, which was at 9%. Apparently, that was an improvement on 7% from two years before. Top, top of the trust list, who do you trust the most? The British public trusts their GP. 93% of people trust their doctor. I don't know where pastors came in the list. And I don't know about you, but I'm often distressed by my inability to keep a promise. You know, maybe you're a parent, you say, you say something to kids. I promise to read with you tonight, and then circumstances stop you. I actually long to be a man of my word. Don't, don't you long to be a person of your word? that when you say something, you'll always do it. That's a mark of a true friend, isn't it? That you can take a true friend at their word. They say something to you, and they do it. They stick to it. But the sad thing is, as human beings, we just can't keep our promises. And that's because, on one hand, like the Bible tells us, we're so sinful, we're weak, we're mixed up. Therefore, we say things and we change our mind and we, we just don't love people enough to follow through on what we've said. We break our word. Or on the other hand, because we actually are weak, we're incapable of, of carrying out the things that we'd really like to do, but we just don't have the power to do it. Circumstances stop us. Now, we've already seen in the book of Joshua that one of the hallmarks of the Lord God is that he always keeps his promises. One of the ways that the God of the Bible is totally unique is that he says things and he always does them. And last week we were with the Israelites, his people, as they walk into the promised land. They walked across the bed of the river Jordan that the Lord himself held back the river so they could do that. They walk into a land that God promised them first 440 years previously. That's a long time to keep a promise. He told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he would go into this land. Oh, they were a great nation, just like Abraham had been told. Uh, they'd been a blessing to themselves and others, but, but they hadn't yet got into the land. But, but now they are in Canaan, the promised land. And at the start of chapter 5, we see God's word coming true again. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. But we'll turn back one page to chapter 1 and verse 5. You see, this is what God promised. Verse 5, the Lord had said, No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And this is what Rahab, the prostitute, had said would happen. Look at chapter 2 and verse 24. Uh, the two men came back and, and they said, as they reported these spies of the nature of Jericho, the Lord will surely, surely give the whole land into our hearts. All the people are melting in fear because of us. This is actually what Joshua said would be the result of them walking across the Jordan last week at the end of chapter 4, verse 4 and chapter 4, verse 24. 
He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, and so you might always fear the Lord your God. God's promises are coming true. And at the start of chapter 5, we come into a new section in the book of Joshua. We've completed the crossing into the land, and between chapter 5 and chapter 12, we're going to see the conquest of the land. But before the people can take possession, they have to prepare themselves. But this is not the way that you and I might get ready for war, what goes on in this chapter. And the first thing we see with all this talk about circumcision is that God's promises require inner faith. God's promises require inner faith. I look to chapter 5 and verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. In fact, all the way, chapter 5 verses 2 to 9 is dominated by the issue of circumcision. And due to Google, I don't need to tell you what that is. If you don't know, you can look it up. Now, right back in Genesis 17, the Lord had said that when he confirmed his promises to Abraham, that that he'd given the sign of circumcision. He said this in Genesis 17, verse 10. This is my covenant, my, my promises with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You see, circumcision mattered. It was an outward sign that you were taking God's promises seriously, that you are one of his people, and you wanted the Lord to be your God. But, But the outward sign in itself, it achieved nothing. Do you know why Joshua had to circumcise these men? Well, look at chapter 5 and verse 4. Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. Did you see who is circumcised in those verses? Well, it's the men who had come out of Egypt. They had God's sign. These men had witnessed the whole events of the Exodus. They'd seen the the ten plagues. They'd seen the Passover. They'd heard the screams from the Egyptian households as the angel of death killed their firstborn sons. These are men who'd walked through the Red Sea when it was parted on dry ground. They'd eaten God's miraculous bread, manna off the ground. That They'd seen the rock split and water pour out from the Lord. They'd seen all those things. They had the mark of circumcision in their bodies. And yet, beginning of verse 6, the Israelites had moved about in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who were military age, when they left Egypt, had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. You see, they'd seen those wonderful things. They had the outward mark of religion, but there was no inner faith. An inner faith worked out in obedience to the Lord. You see, these Israelites, they'd been punished because they refused to enter the land. What they didn't believe was that God, who had promised that he'd given them this land, could deal with the inhabitants. You might know the story. They didn't believe that God could give them victory in battle because 
they went to the match and they saw the size of their lads and they thought, we're not fighting them, so they rebelled against their skipper Moses and said they would rather hot-foot it back to some, some comfortable slavery in Egypt. We're not taking them on, Moses. And the result was, God said, you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years until you die. You see, outward religion is useless unless you have a genuine heartfelt trust in the Lord that works itself out with you walking in obedience to His promises. You can be baptized. You can become a member of our church. You can attend church every week. You can take communion twice a month, and it will achieve absolutely nothing unless in your heart you have a deep inner trust in the Lord Jesus that's worked out not just in this building or not just in a group, but it's worked out throughout the whole of your life as you seek to obey Him. Outward signs are dead, that inner faith. Now, now what's the solution to that problem? I mean, is it that you should, you should try harder? Perhaps you're thinking, I'm, I'm, I, do I really have an, an inner trust in Jesus? Perhaps I should knuckle down and, and obey some more commands? Perhaps I need to sort out how I live for the Lord day by day? Well, you, you may well need to. But, but the solution is actually not to look to our efforts and works, but, but to look to the Lord who, who works in our hearts. It's because the Israelites didn't trust God that they wouldn't walk in the light of his promises. They wouldn't obey him. Let, let me ruin the story for you. Jo- Joshua, you might have noticed, is not the last book in the Bible. They're going to end up in the land, and then it's going to go wrong again. Sorry, but that, that's where we're going, okay? They're not going to prove much better than their, their forefathers. In fact, that, that inner heart trust of obedience, in the end, is something that God has to give his people. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says much later in his letter to the Romans in the New Testament. He writes this in Romans 2.28. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. See what Paul says? A true member of God's people is not someone who's had some minor surgery on the outside. A true Jew, a true member of God's people, is someone who's had major surgery on the inside. A heart surgery where they've been changed by God's Spirit. And that change only comes when you see the worthlessness of your own ability to make yourself right with God. When you see the uselessness of our own religion, when we admit the the very sinfulness of our nature, our inability in ourselves to be faithful and keep God's promises. It's only when we see ourselves as we are and we come to Jesus, the one who died so that we could be cleansed on the inside, a deep cleansing of of our very hearts themselves, the one who comes by his spirit and changes our very motives, our very desires, our very dependence upon our, ourself and, and brings us to, to trust in Christ. You see, if, if you're here and you think, well, I'm, I'm not sure I do have a genuine inner trust in Jesus that transforms my life day by day, 
The solution is not try harder. The solution is to get on your knees and admit to God that you can't change your heart, but that he can. That you can't obey him, but that he can give you the strength. That you struggle to believe his promises, but that he can make them the reality by which you live. And if you don't recognize that as the state of your heart, that's why I want to recommend Christianity Explored to you. You see, the place to go if you're struggling to live for Christ is not to a new level of personal effort, but it's back to the basics of the gospel, back to the good news of Jesus itself, where you meet the one who will make you into the person that he longs you to be, a person who trusts him in obedience day by day. Because genuine faith in Christ is always seen in actively trusting his promises. That's the first thing. God's promises require inner faith. But heaven is very much open to you if you've not yet trusted in Jesus. Because here's the second thing we see. God's promises persist through disobedience. God's promises persist through disobedience. I wonder if you noticed uh, how much God swore in verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that he would not, they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. In fact, he, he swears twice. It's, it's slightly obscured by our translation. He swears to their forefathers they're not going to see the land because of their disobedience. But that didn't change the fact that in the past he had solemnly promised, or more accurately, he had sworn to their fathers that he'd give them the land. So how is he going to give them the land? Verse 7. So he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. You see, God takes the disobedient people, and yes, he punishes their forefathers, but he says, I am going to keep my promises to the Israelites. Therefore, your sons will go into the land in your place. There are going to be descendants of Abraham in this land, says God, because that's what I said I was going to do. And you know that our unbelief is never going to hinder God keeping his promises? However weak you feel your faith is, that's not going to stop God. The, the issue of God keeping his promises doesn't depend on you, it, it depends on him. He'll keep them despite us. He will gather his people to himself. But because you probably know this, this promised land in Joshua, as we read on through the Bible, is just a picture. It's a picture of the perfect promised land that God promises to take his people too, a perfect new creation, this world restored to everything that it should be and more. And God has promised that he will do that for his people when Jesus returns to, to judge the world and rid it of all evil and wrongdoing. And everyone God wants to be there will be there. And Jesus tells a, a parable in Mark's gospel to illustrate this. Let me read to you Mark chapter 4 and verse 26. Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces corn, first the stalk, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. 
As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts a sickle to it, because the harvest has come. See the point of the story? Doesn't matter what the farmer does, the seed just grows, and he takes in the harvest. And the point is, God is going to bring in his harvest, whatever we do. God, God will gather all his people into his kingdom. He will take all the people he wants to be with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the perfect new creation. That should humble us, shouldn't it? And shouldn't that encourage us? That means we can't think too highly of ourselves, but it also means we can't think too lowly of our Lord. You know, if we think too, too highly of ourselves, if we think that God achieving his promises depends on us, then we'll think maybe church growth, that's, that's all about what we do. In fact, we're the, the vital linchpin in the plan of God. I mean, without us, the, the good news of Jesus is doomed in Chessington. You know, don't worry, Lord, but we're here to save people. But we can't. But of course, if we think too lowly of our Lord, well, then we'll never invite anyone to the curry night because they said no last time. And then the week when no one new comes to church or, or people don't turn up to the Bible study we're running, we'll think, well, I'm just incapable. I can't even get my own family to sit down and, and study the Bible in a meaningful way. See, if we think that, that it's all about us and, and not about him, we'll easily get despondent. We'll think we failed. The situation is hopeless. The case of Christianity is lost in England, in Christendom. Well, actually, you might start believing one of those things. You might have heard Christians say this. We live in a post-Christian culture, and it's hard out there, as though in some way God has slightly lost his influence in the world he created, and he needs to, to sort of carry out a review, a, a launch a new manifesto. He needs something better than the gospel to reach the UK today, but he doesn't. The Lord always keeps his promises, despite his people. He is utterly sovereign. Now, the Bible tells us not even a sparrow plummets out a tree without him willing it. He has kept every promise he made. He even ordered the entirety of history so that his son was born, died, and raised at just the right time in just the right place to fulfill every promise in the Old Testament. You see, when, when we see that, isn't that an encouragement to us? We can ask people to Christianity explored again and again and again, even if they keep saying no, because in the end, the Lord will gather in his people. He will do the work. We can have confidence. We can have confidence even if our church disappeared off the face of the planet. If CEC ceased to exist, we imploded through infighting and financial ruin. Well, God will still gather his people to himself. He'll raise up new churches. Our God keeps his promises. That's the second thing this passage shows us. God's promises persist even through his people's disobedience. And that's because lastly we need to see God's promises produce the goods. God's promises produce the goods. You see, in, uh, in Joshua 5, when the, uh, when the young men had stopped walking around like John Wayne after a day in the saddle, I realized when I wrote that that actually um, most of you haven't got a clue who John Wayne is. Uh, maybe uh, Bradley Wiggins after a nasty accident. Anyway, they're walking around in pain. Once that's stopped, the Lord speaks to Joshua again. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. 
the reproach of Egypt. You know, now the Egyptians are going to have to stop all those Hebrew jokes that they were making. <laughs> Do you hear the one about the nation that God rescued from slavery and then made to walk around the desert for 40 years until they all died? <laughs> They're going to have to stop that because the Israelites are now in the promised land. God in his grace has taken them there. And so verse 10, on the, four, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. They, they remember that, that great rescue event from Egypt, the, the night that the Lord had put to death the firstborn of the Egyptians and, and saved their sons. And the people remembering that, they'd been in nappies on that night. Among these very men were the firstborn sons of the, of the Israelites who, who'd been saved by the death of the Lamb in their place. And now they're the head of their families. And they're enjoying the blessings that the Passover made possible. Do you see that in verse 11? The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. In fact, in verse 11 and 12, we're told three times they eat the produce of the land. Do you see that again? Verse 11, they ate some of the produce of the land. Verse 12, the manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Oh, I think the writer's making a point. They weren't going to need any more of that manna. No more of that miraculous bread-like substance from God while they, they traveled around the desert. No, no, now they were at their destination. They're enjoying the fruit of paradise. At last, the promise God made to, to Abraham in, in Genesis 12 is fulfilled. See, God's promises produce the goods. The people had been sustained by manna, but now they're enjoying the real thing. Don't know, are you tempted by those, those taste-out counters in supermarkets? We love them as a family. My kids love them. Yeah? I mean, it's just how many times you can get going around without the woman looking slightly irritated at you as you taste the most delicious cheese or the latest thing they're trying to sell you off the uh, deli counter or a nice new sausage. I mean, the idea is simple, isn't it? Basically, you taste that and then you'll just want to buy kilos of the real thing. I fell for the sushi recently. It was jolly expensive. But it worked. Taste and eat. Well, in one way, God had sustained his people with manna as a way of pointing to the full and final perfect provision for them now in Canaan, in the promised land, a provision they're enjoying. And Jesus describes himself to us as the true manna the true bread from heaven, from God. Listen to what he says in John chapter 6, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. You see, if we, if we come to Jesus, if we feed on him, the one who died on the cross for us, who gave his flesh for us, he assures us with this promise of eternal life. That, that's life forever in relationship with God, both now and through death into that perfect paradise of the new creation. So that Jesus goes on to promise just three verses later in verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. See, did you ever doubt that, that God's promise is going to produce the goods? You, know, you live day by day in a world that seems dominated by suffering and by pain and by difficulty. 
Sometimes trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ seems to make life harder rather than easier. And we stand up here and we talk about the new creation and no more tears and sadness. And you think, that sounds great, but I mean, it's a bit pie in the sky when you die. I mean, how do we know God's going to produce the goods? Why is it worth living now for that then? Well, the cross is a post driven into the ground which stakes our claim to the life of the promised land by the death of Jesus. It's where all the promises of God are focused. So if we ever doubt, say, that we're good enough to go to be in heaven, we, we can look to the cross and say, no, that's real. Jesus' death makes us good enough. If we ever doubt that God loves us enough to take us through this life to a perfect new creation, then we can look to the cross and say, well, if God gave us his one and only son, if he loves us like that, surely he'll give us all things. If we doubt that God wants us to be with him, either now personally or forever in eternity, well, we can look to the cross and see God wants our presence with him so badly. He wants us to dwell with him and him to dwell with us so badly that Jesus suffers and died in our place. And if we ever doubt that the, the, the reality of, of that promise of life after death is ours, well, we can look to the cross and the resurrection and know that there is a man who has come through death and now is at the Father's right hand and will return to take us home. God's promises produce the goods. We can be sure the promised land. We will know one day what it is to be perfectly cleansed. We'll know what it is to be perfectly loved. We'll see Jesus face to face. 440 years earlier, God had said to Abraham, your descendants will come to this land. 440 years later, the children of the disobedient Israelites who'd experienced the whole exodus are walking into the land. They're tasting a land of milk and honey. But what they taste as they see God's promises fulfilled is nothing compared to what we will experience forever. Because God always keeps his promises. And that's shown first and foremost not in circumcision, just outside the walls of Jericho. It's shown first and foremost in the bloody death of his son, raised and ascended for us, so that one day Jesus will raise us up as he's promised, and we will live forever with him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, sometimes it's so hard to trust what you say is true. Life day by day crowds in. The reality of suffering seems stronger than the reality of your presence. The future doesn't seem to change. And we look in eternity and it looks a long way away. Please help us to come to your word and see that you are the God who keeps every promise you've made. And that they all yes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the light of that, please, on our knees, would we ask you to strengthen our faith in Christ as weak sinners who struggle to trust you in obedience day by day. Uh, please, our Father, would our hearts 
be more and more fixed upon the wonder and beauty of our Savior, that day by day we might live for him as you take us home. And we ask it for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.